Well, good morning. Good morning. This morning we're going to uh, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter four of uh, of the book of Hebrews, verses one through thirteen. Um, I'm just going to take a moment. Uh, uh, we have with us a, a, a couple that caused a lot of excitement when they walked in the room today, especially for those, especially especially those of us who came from Grace Community over to here. Uh, this is this is uh, 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 I forgot your names, <laughs> Nathan and Annie Phillips, and their their newest addition, Caleb, and uh, uh, they are uh, missionaries with uh, with. Uh, 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 BLF, uh, biblical, biblical literature in French, and they are stationed in Lyon, France. And I have no idea. They probably know what that meant, but I don't have. But uh, yeah, and and even 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 mom joined us today. So <laughs> uh, so at any rate, uh, we we just uh, we're just glad to have them home for a while, and and uh, thank you for welcoming them with us. So. Anyway, that's where we're this morning. We're going to uh, we're going to be looking at Hebrews four one through thirteen. Um, this is the this was introduced in the text last week. The idea of rest, uh, the rest is uh, uh, going to be expanded upon in chapter four one through thirteen. And uh, um, actually, some commentators commented that the monks did a bad job of putting the chapter break here. This, this just should have stayed part of chapter three. And uh, uh, and actually, that's true because the last part of this text should have gone to chapter five. But anyway, uh, but at any rate, at any rate, uh, uh, we're going to be looking at this this morning as we go through this. You know, the concept uh, just to kind of a little bit just to keep us up to date. Keep in mind that this is a text that this is a book that was primarily written uh, to Jewish believers in the late 60s A.D. Um, it was a time in which. Uh, Roman persecution hadn't really kicked in yet. Uh, uh, there, there, um, before the, at this point, Christianity was still seen as just a sect of Judaism and therefore a legal religion, and the Romans didn't care anything about them, and quite frankly. And, uh, but the persecution that the church faced in that time primarily came from, from, the Jew, from Jews. That's primarily where, the, for it, where it came from. And for Jewish believers, it was especially difficult because it was their family. It was their people. And they basically had been um, excommunicated from, from the Jewish commonwealth is, is basically the idea that it happened. And, and a lot of them had tried to keep their foot, one foot in Judaism and one foot in Christianity. We have, we have a number of places today in Christianity where that's taking place. And they, uh, they, uh, uh, they were struggling with that. And this book is kind of addresses some of those issues. And uh, what he has done is he's introduced the fact that Israel failed to enter rest. They failed to enter enter. enter inner rest because of disobedience and unbelief. Uh, that, those are the terms that, he, that, that are employed here. They just, uh, they refused to believe God. They fought him constantly, if you will. In fact, we saw in one of the texts last, we, last uh, week that they rebelled ten times in the wilderness. There was just a constant rebellion going on with them in the, in the wilderness. They fought Moses all the way. They cried to go back to Egypt, you know, go back to what we used to have was kind of the idea. For those of us that are older, it's kind of a reminder not to say the good old days. But anyway, because <laughs> maybe they weren't. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, but at any rate, uh, uh, here, here we, have this, we have this concept of rest that is going to be introduced and is going to be discussed. And the basic idea of rest is the cessation from work. Um, but as it's applied to salvation, it means that we no longer, for those of us who are in Christ, we no longer exercise self-will and self-work to try to obtain righteousness, to try to somehow somehow um, uh, please God or appease God. Uh, we are at rest from that. We have been. We we no longer do that kind of thing. It means that we're at peace with God. Uh, we have a confidence in Christ, and we look to the eternal rest 
which, of course, is, is heaven, uh, um, when we're in his presence for eternity. Uh, chapter 4 is going to use the, dis- the unbelief, the failure of Israel to enter the fr- physical rest of the land. Uh, the whole theme behind chapter 3 and into chapter 4 is they fell in the wilderness. That's what happened to them, uh, that they fell in the wilderness, save two. There were only two that believed. And, and they missed out because of unbelief. And basically the idea here is he's using their example to encourage these, these Jewish believers and some of the just hanger-ons that are around, around the church, which we always have. That's why Pastor Steve gives an invitation at the end of every message, because there's always people here who are not, and, uh, or who maybe think they are but are not. And, and that's, that's the idea here, is to encourage them. Uh, to to continue on and to seek after that rest. So that's that's the basic thrust of uh, of where we're going to be going this morning as we look at entering God's rest. And I broke it down into kind of talking about God's rest, God's timing in that, and then finally God's the effect of God's word and all of that. And that's the way we're gonna gonna be looking at the text this morning. And this morning I'm just gonna take a moment and we'll we'll open in prayer. Father God, we thank you this morning as we come together. We, we thank you for this, for this group of people that you've called together in this place to serve you. And, and uh, I especially, as one of the newer ones here, give, give you praise for the, uh, for, the, uh, for the dedication to the word of God that we see in this place. And Father, may we never lose that. May, may we never slip from that. May we always keep your word forefront in our thinking. And Father, this morning as we turn to your word, we just ask that your spirit would use it to encourage us, to draw us closer, uh, that your spirit would do the teaching this morning, that uh, you would draw each of us closer to you as, uh, as we look into your word this morning. And we would give you all the praise in the name of our precious Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we want to look first of all at verses 1 through 5, which I, I just entitled God's Rest. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not, because, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter the rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his work. And again in the passage it says, they shall not enter my my rest. So first of all, he begins, the therefore ties us back to chapter 3. As we said, this is kind of a continuation of chapter 3 as we come into chapter 4. And he ties us back to that and predominantly what he had to say in verses in verses 12 through uh, 15 where he says take care brother lest there be any of you uh, in, uh, lest there be in any of you unbelieving hearts leading to to a fall away from the living God exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for you for you have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And then, of course, verse 19. For we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, that's the idea here. Therefore, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. As we come into this text, there's basically three important words. There's, there's three words in this first verse that, uh, that, we, that we're going to focus on. Fear, promise, and failure. In the context, Israel failed to reach the promise with the exception of, of Caleb and Joshua. They were the only ones who, who went into the land out of, that gener- out of that Exodus generation. They were the only ones to go. They were the only ones that believed. They went in as spies. They looked at the land, and they said, it's everything God said it is. Let's go take it. The other ten said, it's a scary place, let's run. There are giants. Yeah, there's giants in the land. And our God's not big enough. That, that, was, that was the bottom line. But these guys said, no, well, let's go. They believed, they entered the rest. 
So he's saying the rest didn't. That's, that's, what, that's the point here. Uh, uh, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should, should, uh, should have failed to reach it. So the first thing is, is to understand this. As believers, we are told, according to the King James, well, I tribute to you, uh, uh, according to the King James, there are 103 times that the King James Bible records the words of God to us saying, do not fear or fear not. So for believers, that's, he's not talking about being afraid here. That's, that's not the idea here. Uh, that's, that's not the, the concept that's going on here. Uh, in, John, in 1 John 4, 18, we're told that perfect love casts out fear. Jesus loves us perfectly. We have nothing to fear. Uh, that's not what he's saying here. Uh, fear here needs to be understood in the context of Galatians 4, where Paul said, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. It's the idea of having an anxiousness or, or, a, or a deep concern for a group of people to whom you're trying to reach. That's, that's the idea here. I'm sure, I'm sure all of us have people in our families, in our lives, in our circle, that we have deep concern over that the gospel would reach them. That's, that's the idea here. The idea here is believers are not, isn't calling believers to be afraid. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's talking about a deep concern, a very deep concern. He says, he says I am deeply concerned that you might fail or you might fall, you might fail to reach it. That's, that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I have a deep concern for that. I don't want to see that happen to you. That's why he's writing this. And then the second word is promise. And what he says about the promise is, it still stands. What he's saying is, the message of God's salvation didn't end with those that failed. That's, that's what he's saying here. It still stands. It's still good. And he's going to go on and elaborate on that. But he's saying that message still stands. It's still, it's still there. Um, it's extended to every generation. And it's based on God's faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 1.19, God is faithful. That's, 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 the, that's the idea here. That promise stands because the God who stands behind it is a faithful God. And then the third word is fail or failure. And he says that any of you, it pictures, it actually pictures, it's interesting how the wording is structured here, not structures, it pictures a race, and it pictures a guy that falls down in the race. Not a guy that comes in last, it's a guy that doesn't cross the finish line. That's, that's the picture here. The picture is, you got in a race, but you didn't make it to the end, you bailed. That, that's the picture of failure here. You failed to reach the goal. You failed to reach the finish line. You failed to get where you were, but where you were supposed to go, you didn't finish. And the idea that the call here, the call here, I think that there's a call to all of us who are believers, there's a call here to be observant of each other, uh, to, to make sure within our circle, within our family of people, within the people we see here, we don't see people failing to reach the goal. Uh, that we, we can be assured they have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Not like Israel, who did a seemingly initially and followed Moses, but as soon as anything got pressed, they panicked and wanted to turn back. That, that's, that's the idea here. And he goes on from that, and the four links us back to verse 1, and he says, For, for good news came to us, just, as it, just to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not, not united by faith with those who listened. This is a very clear picture that within the family of Israel, most of them didn't listen. Uh, this word good news is, is the word you think it is, evangelize. That's the word. That's, that's the word that's being used here. What he's saying here is Israel was evangelized completely. Yeah, they had 40 years of it. They had 40 years of it. You know what? His, he probably do a better job of it than I am, so that's, that's okay. <laughs> but, 
but it's 40 years they were evangelized in the wilderness. 40 years they saw God at work. And they died in the wilderness. Only two. That's what he's talking about. They weren't united with those that believed. Caleb and Joshua believed. And even seeing the faith of Caleb and Joshua, however many others there were, and it was probably a few million, died in the wilderness. They died. Why? Because seeing God, hearing God, is not enough. You have to believe Him. You have to put your trust in Him. You have to put your faith in Him. And that's what they failed to do. They failed to do that. And he says, as a result, as a result, they were not united. They, they were not united in faith with those who listen. And then he goes on and he says, For we who have believed enter the rest. Verse 3. Oh, incidentally, I, I forgot a couple of texts here I wanted to deal with. Uh, Romans Romans chapter, Romans chapter 10. At verse 14. For how then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are we, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. And then it goes on, as Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? For faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of God. Basically, they had all of that. That's what this text is saying. In fact, I, Paul is going back to the failure of Israel here. In, in, his, in, his, in his comments, they failed because they didn't believe. They heard, but they didn't believe. It's John twelve forty eight. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. That's the point here. They heard, but they didn't believe. And the word, therefore, became their judge, not their salvation. In verse 3, he goes on and he says, he says, he says, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said. Verse 3 starts out, he notes, he notes that here the promise is both, both promise and warning. What he's saying here is the rest is both promise and warning. He, he's basically saying, he's saying, look, those of us who believed, those who put our faith and our trust in our Lord, for the old, in the Old Testament guys, uh, for the, the, the nation of Israel, it was to trust in their God who called them out of Egypt. Uh, for us today, it's, we put faith in Jesus Christ. It was the same one leading them out. So it's the same, same difference. The, the, there that was trust in the Messiah, and here it's trust in the Messiah who is Jesus. Uh, but the, the point is, it's the same salvation in both, in both contexts. And the idea is, uh, they failed to do that. Paul in First Thessalonians three thirteen, he goes he compliments on them how the word was received by them, and he says that that they heard and they accepted God's word. Those two have to go together. It's not just hearing; it's accepting. Israel failed to do that, but he goes on and he says, but he goes on in this text and he says, what he's saying here is. Those, uh, for those who have believed, entered the rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his work, works were finished from the foundation of the earth. In other words, he set all of this in place before it ever was, and he established that those who didn't accept would not go in to his rest. There is no universalism. Uh, there, is, there, is, there is a line that can't, that must be crossed. And that is, you must believe. You must believe the word of God. And, that, and Israel failed to do that. That's what he's telling them here. He's saying they just failed completely to do that. He goes on and he says, for he, for he, has, he has somewhere spoken. The author here doesn't ever point to the authors. He just points to the text. 
which is kind of a good thing, I guess. He says he has spoken somewhere, and it doesn't mean he didn't know where it was. You know, that it, don't, don't take that idea. That's not what it means. He knows exactly what he's talking about. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his work. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Once again, he says, God, God he, he goes back here to two Old Testament texts. He picks back up in Psalms 95 that we looked at last week pretty extensively. And he picks up Genesis 2.2. That on the seventh day of creation, God rested. His work, his work of creation was finished. It was a finished work. And therefore, he rested. Um, that rest becomes the Sabbath rest, incidentally. In, in, uh, later on in the, in the text, it's, it, it, is, it is noted that way. And, and, and it's important to notice that when it talks about God resting, God is never idle. It doesn't mean he isn't still involved. It doesn't mean he just went and took a nap. You know, that's kind of what I think of when I talk about rest. When I go home this afternoon, I'm probably going to take a nap. But that's not what God did, because because John 5.17, Jesus says, My Father is always at his work. Here it just pictures the work of creation. The creation is finished. He said it before the foundation of the world. Incidentally, Salvation is established at that point, too. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. He knew. He knew exactly where everything was and how everything was going to come about. And that's what he's saying here. He's simply saying, God completed his work. It's a completed work. He's not involved in doing that anymore because it's done. And, he's, and, and he is offering you to come into that finished work, is the idea that's being expressed here. He, sa- he, go- he, says, he says, and he rested on the seventh day. Basically, for Israel, they never came to rest. They just wandered aimlessly, or seemingly aimlessly, through the desert. And they died there. They died in a wasteland is the, is the idea. But the, ne- and, 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 uh, the Exodus generation, generation never saw the rest that was promised save Caleb and Joshua. And then, then in verse 5, he, he reiterates. Uh, he just says, they shall never enter my rest. Back to Psalms, Psalms 95, verse 11. Uh, those who, those who, because of disobedience, from chapter from chapter three, verse nineteen, for unbelief, never entered his rest. And then he goes. Then he then he starts talking about the timing of things. Gets a little more positive here, I think. He says, since therefore it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain certain day today saying through David so long ago, afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God from, from his. So here he, says, here he says, while faithless Israel failed to enter, while they failed to enter, while they didn't do as God commanded them, as they failed to listen to him, as they failed to believe his words, it says that didn't end things. That didn't bring the promise to an end. God didn't say, to heck with the whole thing. It says there still remains. Uh, he says there still remains. Uh, there still remains time to enter God's rest. There remains for some to enter. Verse 6 tells us the promise is still valid. It's interesting. Verse 6 tells us that. It tells us the promise is still valid, but then it makes no exhortation and it gives no explanation. It just says it's still valid. The explanation is actually in verse 11. That's where the exhortation is. Verse 11 says, Therefore let us strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by some sort of disobedience. That's the exhortation. 
that accompanies this verse 6. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But, but that's the idea here. He's telling them, it's still valid. It's a valid promise. It's for, it's still there. And he tells us when it's for, it's there for today. He talks of another day. And that other day is every other day thereafter is, is the idea. He says, there, 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 is, there is a certainty of this. It's a warning of disobedience because of failure. It says, if you don't listen, if you don't take advantage, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't take it to heart and believe it, you'll be like Israel, wandering through the wilderness and dying therein. That's what he's going to, going to tell them. But he, he goes on in, in, in verse 7, and he, and he says, he says, and here's the, the best part of this text, uh, of this part of the text. He says, but he appointed a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And once again, we go back to Psalm 95. Psalm 95 runs through this entire text, and he basically says today. Today doesn't mean any particular day. It basically means any day you're alive. Because as long as you're alive, there is opportunity to believe. But you don't have any promise of how many todays you have. So it's today. That's, that's the issue here. It's, it's don't mess around with it. Don't think I can put it off till tomorrow because you don't have a promise of tomorrow. In fact, we don't have a promise of making it out of this room. That, that's the issue here. It's today. It's now. Second uh, Corinthians 6.2. For he said, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's ultimately what the author is saying here. The promise is valid today. That's, that's what it's saying. The promise is valid today. It was, promi- it was valid when it was given to Moses. It was valid when David spoke of it. It was valid during Joshua's conquest. It's valid today. It's still valid. But there's a day it will come to an end. That's, that's the point here. It only lasts so long, but it's still valid. Verse 8 goes on, and he says, he says in verse 8, he says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another day later. Here's, here's the point. The, the rest promised to Israel was a temporal, physical rest. It wasn't the permanent rest God was speaking of. It was a picture of what rest will be. That's what it, that's, that's the idea here. Most of the, a lot of the prophecies of the Old Testament had a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment was the land of Israel. The far fulfillment is heaven. And that's what he's saying in this deal, in this, in this, in this passage. In this passage, he's simply saying, Joshua is only the picture of what was to come in rest. It was only a type of rest. It wasn't the full completion of the rest. It was a conditional rest. That's demonstrated quite clearly in Joshua chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Well, actually, in Joshua, uh, in, 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 in Deuteronomy 12.10, um, we are told that, uh, that the, the rest is promised to them. In Joshua 22.4, Joshua releases the, uh, the tribes that lived on the east side of the Jordan and tells them, we're at peace now. You can go home. The war is over. That's, that's, so that's, that's the partial fulfillment. But when we get to Joshua chapter 2, or excuse me, Judges chapter 2, 6 through 15, we find a whole different story. And we see the temporalness and the conditionality of, the, of this part of the promise. 
Because in Judges chapter 2, it starts talking about the generation that followed the generation that went into the land. Their kids. And what it says there is, they didn't know God and they followed after Baal. And we know the story of Israel from there on. We know the story of Israel from there on. So it was conditional. This points, the author here is pointing them to a rest beyond Joshua, beyond the land, beyond the temporal rest and the, and the physical rest of the land. It points to a spiritual rest. It points to the cessation of sin. Believers now experience release from the penalty of sin. All of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ are no longer under the penalty of sin. It was removed. Jesus covered it all. Our sins were taken as far as the east is from the west because of Jesus and what he did on our behalf. And by having put our trust and faith in him, that sin has been removed from me and from all of you. Secondly, we've been removed from the power of sin Although we still live in a world of sin and a body that can succumb to sin, we, we do have the power to overcome it. 1 Corinthians 10.13. So the, it really has no power over us other than as we disobey, you might say. But there's a complete rest that is going to come when we go to be with Jesus, because then the very presence of sin is gone. Heaven, there is no sin. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, anymore for the former things have passed away. That's, that's the picture of the rest that the author of Hebrews is talking about. Uh, that's the picture he sees. It's the Sabbath rest that is promised. That's what, he, that's what he wants us to understand. He says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. For whoever enters God's rest is also rested from his work as God did. That's, that's the picture here. Sin is no more. Peace, it reigns. And we are in the presence of our God. That's, that's the picture so then he, he says, as a result of that, he's going to talk about the Word of God and the importance of the Word of God in all of this. He says, but he begins by saying, Let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may, may fall short uh, uh, by some sort of disobedience. First of all, in verse 11, strive. strive. When I read the word strive, I don't know about you, but when I read the word strive, it means to work real hard to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's not what it means. <laughs> That's not what it means in this text. That's not at all what it means. Uh, I don't know why the uh, translators decided to use it that way, but uh, that's probably not the best word. Uh, but strive is more like its use in 2 Timothy 4, 9, where, where Paul tells Timothy, come quickly to me, where, he wanted, where he's wanting Paul to come to him. It has the sense of hasten. Be quick about it. Get with it. It's also used in it's used in First Thessalonians two seventeen, uh, where Paul talks about the fact that he was, as you know, he didn't spend very long in Thessalonica, and he was concerned about the Thessalonians because he didn't get to spend much time with them. He got a report that the word of God had taken hold there, and and that their faith was known throughout the entire region. Uh, and he, so he says that he's all the more eager to come to them. It's this same word, to, str- to strive. It's the same word. And so it's an eagerness. That's the idea here. 
it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I'm in a hurry. Um, uh, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to be in the presence of God. That's the idea here. He says, let us strive to enter the rest. It means there should be an eager anticipation. It means that's what we should be looking forward to. That's where we should have our eyes fixed. This is what it means later on in 12, to fix your eyes upon Jesus. That's where we should be looking. That's, that's the call here to strive. It's to be very eager to enter the Sabbath rest that is promised in verses 9 and 10, uh, that we want to enter that rest. Let's strive so that, that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We don't want, we don't want to leave anybody behind. It comes along with that. We should be eager to point everyone to, to Jesus. Well, I can't pick it up either. Uh, but anyway, it, it should be, there should be an eagerness in that as well. We don't want to see anyone left behind. Uh, we, want to see, we want to see no one living in disobedience. Incidentally, that's why there's church discipline, you know. That's what it's all about. It's all about to keep us on the even keel. It, it's an important feature. It's an important function. That no one fall into disobedience. That no one would fall into disobedience. Basically saying, the author is saying, don't follow the example of Israel, who failed to believe God and fell in the wilderness and never reached the promise because of their disobedience. It calls us to watchfulness. It calls us to alertness. It calls us to an eagerness to be with Jesus. If you're eager to be with Jesus, you're not going to fall into into disobedience. Because you don't want to go in that state. That's, That's the idea here. And then verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So now he focuses on the word of God. What is it that keeps us eager? It's the word of God. It's having a focus on the word of God. You know, I got to tell you, um, I, I, of course, I very much a. Uh, the absolute authority of the Word of God, the importance of the Word of God, its inerrancy, its accuracy, its, its, its sufficiency. <clears throat> and that's one of the things that, having come here to this church, that really impressed me. The constant focus on the Word of God. I've really never counted up how many verses of Scripture are read in the morning worship service, but it... Steve strives for 50. 50? 50. That's he told me three chapters, so I didn't know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And, and it's like, where is our, so where is our focus? And where is the focus in the preaching and hopefully in my teaching? It's on the Word of God. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where your focus is to be. Now, I don't think this text is teaching, as some people try to say, the trichotomy of, of man... That man is trichotomous. I don't, I don't think that's what it's trying to teach. You know, I'm not even going to argue whether he's a dichotomy or a trichotomy or binary or whatever it is. We're, we're not going to go there this morning. Uh, the focus here is the effect that God's word has. It's penetrating effect. Uh, it's, uh, it's, overall, it's overall ability to cut through it. Is, is, is the idea that I think is being expressed here. And he, he says, first of all, he says that it's, he, he, he says that, he says, first of all, that it's a two-edged sword. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. In the ancient world, a two-edged sword was a premier uh, infantry weapon. You know, it's what the M4 is to today's military. Well, maybe they've advanced beyond that now. I'm not sure. But anyway, when I was there, it was the M16. But at any rate, uh, uh, 
it's, it's the most advanced military weapon, uh, infantry weapon. It was sharp. It cut both ways. Wherever it swung, it cut. That, that's the point here. Um, for us, it's our offensive weapon. Galatians six seventeen, I think. <laughs> uh, but it, it's it's our offensive weapon. It's our offensive weapon. Uh, and 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 he says he says here that it's like that. It's it's. I suppose if we put it in in our terms today. It is sharper than a laser-guided scalpel. Maybe we could put it that way to, to define it. It is more precise. It is more accurate. It cuts right to it. That's, that's the point here. Uh, that, that's the idea that he wants us to understand here. And he, first of all, he says it's living and it's active. Uh, living is first in the Greek text, making the emphasis being on it. It's alive. It's not just a dead book that you sit on the coffee table to impress people. You know, that's not what it's for. It's 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 it is alive and it. It produces life in us. I don't know about you, but one of the things about teaching Bible that that I have found over the last ever how many years I've been doing it, which is quite a few, is every time I open this book, it does a couple of things. One, I learn new things. Sometimes in the same passage I've been in before and, never, and, and I never saw before, and it opens my eyes to something new. And secondly, it convicts. It suddenly, it suddenly cuts into something that maybe I haven't dealt with. Or an attitude I didn't even really realize I had. But it, it cuts into it. It, it. it dissects it. And cuts it out. It's living. It's living. It's alive. Uh, and that's how it's to affect us. And if it doesn't affect you that way, there's one of two things wrong. The guy you're listening to teaching the Bible, or you. One of those two things is wrong. Because if you come to it, that's what it should do. It should cut right to the very bone. Well, even beyond that. Beyond that. He says, it's living. It's living. Peter, Peter said in 1 Peter 1.3 that we're born again through the living, enduring Word of God. That's where we find life. It is the revelation of God himself. What is the Bible about? It's about God. That's, that's, that's the bottom line. And secondly, it's active. He says it's active. It isn't stagnant. Well, the words in it don't change, but they're not stagnant. They're active. They take an active role. If, if, you, if you commit yourself to Jesus Christ and you have the indwelling Holy Spirit who is ultimately your teacher, and you go to the Word of God... The Word of God becomes active in you, just as it is alive and it convicts, it's active in that conviction. It works on you. That's the idea here. This is the word for energy. In 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 1.18, Paul said, The message of the cross is foolish to, foolishness to those who are perishing, but, <clears throat> excuse me, but to us who are being, sa- uh, being saved, it is the power of God. It's the energy of God. It's God's very energy in us. Once again, he goes on and he talks about it being this, this weapon. Oh, and I was right. It's, it's Ephesians 6.17. That's the offensive weapon. It's our offensive weapon, our protection, uh, how we go into battle. Jesus is pictured that out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword, meaning he's the one that yields it ultimately. And he goes on, and then he goes on after that, and he says, he says that it, it penetrates, it divides, and it judges. This, there is nothing that this sword cannot cut into. It talks about how fine the cuts are, how deliberate they are. There's no surgeon's hand that can be as steady as the Word of God when it operates. 
That's, that's the idea here. It, it divides. And he, and he uses these physical expressions to, to say how just fine the cut is. And that day, people didn't make cuts that fine. <laughs> now, maybe today some surgeons can cut close to this, but not the way this means it. Because this is a, a spiritual operation that takes place within you. He cuts out the sin in your life. He cuts out the wrong attitudes in your life. The Bible is the ultimate attitude adjustment. That's, that's what he's saying here. This is the power of the Word of God. This is where we are to, this is where we are to, 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 to learn about our God. And it's, it's something that goes on your entire lifetime. It doesn't end. It doesn't stop. Notice Psalms 139, verses 1 through 3. O Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and you're acquainted with my ways. Therefore, uh, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He goes on to say, you're behind me, your hands are upon me. In other words, God knows us. That's why he can be so, so precise in his surgery. The word of God reaches everywhere, every thought, every attitude, into the physical, into the spirit of man, into his total existence. For the believer, there is no escape from its impact. And it should be impacting you every day. Well, that's the first thing he talks about, is he talks about the Word of God, and then he talks about the God of the Word. That's the second thing he says. The Word of God, as we read it and as we study it, it has this, this operating effect on us, this surgical effect on us. But the reason for that is because of the God who is behind it. And he says, no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to his eyes, to the, to the eyes of him, uh, him who, who we must give an account. Now he talks about the person of God. And he says, he says of God, he says, there's nothing. We saw that in Psalms 139. I could have used this on either, either side here. But at any rate, uh, verse 12 of 139 goes on to say, uh, goes on to say this. Oops. Even in the darkness, it is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is his light with you. In other words, God sees everything. You can't turn out the lights and God can't find you. You can't hide under a blanket. You can't lock yourself in the closet. Basically, this talks about the omniscient God who is ever-present. It talks about the God who knows everything. He knows the beginning from the end. He wrote the script. That's what he's saying here. He says there is no hiding from him. And he goes on to say, no creature is hidden from him. That annoying cricket, he knows where it is. It's uncovered, it's laid bare, it's naked and exposed. This is an interesting phrase, because the phrase in Greek speaks of the... It's, it's a little ambiguous, but it seems to, and most commentators agree, it speaks of the neck. Is what it speaks of. And you've got to catch the word picture here, because it's an interesting one. It's, it's a really interesting one. It, it has the idea of having your head pushed back like this, and you're face to face with God in judgment. That's the picture. That's what this is saying. That, that, that's what it's saying. It exposes. It exposes the face. Basically, the idea is simply this. God knows and sees everything. There's nothing hidden from him. 
I, you know, I, 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 I don't. I have, uh, I have come to the conclusion that I pretty much, well, I don't ignore, but it irritates me too much, but I don't spend much time looking at politics. But I think of all the lies and deceit and hidden stuff that goes on in governments, not just ours, but all of them, God knows every one of those. He knows every one of those things those guys are doing. All the evil intent, even the good intent, he knows it all. That somehow gives me a sense of well-being because I know God knows and he's going to deal with it. There's a certain relief to that. And that's the picture here. God knows. He knows exactly. He knows exactly where you are today. He knows what's troubling you, what's hurting you. He knows, he knows the things that bother you and get under your skin. And he's working on them. With that scalpel. That, that's the idea here. You know, the, the world apart from God, it thinks it hides from God, that it isn't going to be accountable, it isn't going to answer. In fact, in Revelation 6, 6, 16, in the midst of the tribulation, when the, when, the, when the world is facing the most horrible experience it's ever going to face, you want to talk about climate change, wait till then. But, but when that is going on, what does the unsaved world do? It runs to the cliffs and hides in the caves and asks the rocks to hide them from God, and there is no hiding from God. They're his rocks, and they're his caves. There is no hiding. There is no hiding. For the lost world, it's judgment. And it's an, eternity, it's an eternity separated from God. It's an eternity of utter darkness and torment. But for you and me, when we face him, the verdict is acquitted because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And for that we can give thanks. And for that we can give praise. Because God knows your heart. And he knows you. And he knows you personally. And he sees you in his son, Christ. For that we give praise. Father God, as we, uh, as we have looked at this passage this morning, we are, we are thankful. Sometimes it hurts. Uh, sometimes it's painful. But we thank you for the surgical effect of your word on our lives. How you bring us closer to you because you know. And you know us. And you know what our true need is. Not the one we think we need, but the one we really need. And you're at work at that. And that, Father, you have made the way for us to enter that rest, that Sabbath rest, which will be in your presence, in your kingdom, in your heaven. And we thank you for that. And we look forward to that. And may we be eager for that. And may we, may we be eager to bring others with us while the day is right. For today is the day. And we would thank you and we praise you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.